This is The Ascending Life with Pastor Josh Blevins of Grace Calvary Chapel. The decision of faith is that it takes faith to say this wasn't right, but God is still using it. He has something different and better in the future that will come out of this that I don't see yet. And it takes faith to not be buried in bitterness and unforgiveness and let the whole plan of God's future for you be hindered by your anger and your frustration and your hurt. Have you ever made a bad decision and wondered if it ruined God's plan for you? Or maybe it was something completely out of your control. Our bad choices will always have consequences, but that doesn't mean that God can't still work it for your good. And God's ways are often not ours. If you can relate, then this message is for you. In today's message, Pastor Josh will show you how important it is to place your faith in God and His ways every day. All it takes is exercising faith to get back on track with God. Now, here's Pastor Josh in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. As he continues his message, Faith Declares Jesus is Better. This is really hard. Whoa, I wasn't expecting that roadblock. Wow, I wasn't expecting that left turn. And that's when faith is required not only to immediately obey God, but to persevere and endure in obeying God. That's another lesson that Abraham teaches us, is that his obedience wasn't just an emotional response to, oh, okay, God said it, I'll do it. But when it gets hard, I'll follow through until God says, go a different way. Or do a different thing. Why? Because he trusted in the nature of God. He trusted in the heart of God. He trusted in the promise of God. And notice that that leads me to my third observation of Abraham is that he was confident. Abraham was confident. Notice it says in verse 17 again, He who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, Listen, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. And what he's saying here is he gives Isaac the title only begotten son, which is interesting to me. If you know John 3.16, you can already see the correlations beginning to form. But here's the thing. When Abraham looked at Isaac, true or false, Abraham was a human being like you. Same thoughts, same fears, same failures, same concerns. He is leading his son up a mountain. And when he turns back and he looks at Isaac carrying the wood for the sacrifice, he says, that's it. If God's promises are going to be fulfilled, it's going to be right there in that young man. If the nation's going to happen, if the descendants are going to outnumber the stars, if God's, it's all right there. It's all right there in this sacrifice. And he didn't let his human logic stop him even at that point from being obedient to God. He was confident, and notice verse 19, concluding that, I love this, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. In other words, the whole time he's thinking, even if I have to go through and put the knife in my son's heart and offer him as a sacrifice, then as soon as I pull it out, God will cause him to come back to life. That is how faithful I believe God is to his promises. Has Abraham ever seen anyone raised from the dead? No. 
But he's starting to know the character of God. I've already seen God fulfill the impossible. I've already seen God break through my human understanding. I've already seen God do things that I've laughed at him about. And there's no way God is going to fail now. And I love this word concluding. You might want to note that word concluding. It's an accounting term. It's a mathematical term, which means to make calculations or to compute. You know, a lot of times Christians are criticized of having blind faith. Oh, you guys just do stuff, you know, blindly. You just make these crazy decisions blindly. Blind faith, you can't see God. You don't. There is no blind faith for the Christian. I tell you, every single faith decision I made has been calculated. It's been thoughtful. It's been prepared for. But here's the difference between the world and the church. The difference between the world and the church is that the Christian puts God into their calculations. When God is in your calculations, nothing becomes impossible. Well, it's not that we don't think. It's not that we have blind faith. It's simply that we believe in a God who makes all things possible. And when you put him in that equation, you're going to go for it. And you're going to do things that the world looks at you and go, what are you doing? That makes no sense. That doesn't make financial sense. That doesn't make sense for your family. That doesn't make, you know what? If God's in it, then he is the ultimate deciding factor in whether or not this is possible. And this is what he concluded. He computed, he calculated. For Abraham, he knew that God would be faithful to keep his promise, even if that meant that God would raise his son from the dead. And finally, we see that Abraham, in a sense, was prophetic. Notice at the very end of that verse, in verse 19, 20, he says, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. In other words, though God stopped Abraham from offering Isaac as a sacrifice, the very fact that Abraham was willing to do that in his heart, God figuratively received that sacrifice the same way. In other words, Abraham's willingness to obey God by faith was the sacrifice that God accepted. God didn't want Isaac. God didn't want Abraham to human sacrifice of Abraham's son. No, God wanted faith. And isn't it interesting that God chose Abraham, the father of faith, to paint this picture with his son Isaac of what would happen 2,000 years later. Consequently, on the same hill, think about that, you guys, on the same hill in the land of Moriah, God said to Abraham, go to the mountain, I will show you in Moriah. Moriah, 2,000 years later, was what? Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, outside the city gates, on a hill, shown by God, Calvary, Golgotha, just as Isaac carried the wood of the sacrifice up the hill, Jesus carried the burden of the cross up the hill. And when Isaac was about to be sacrificed, God stopped him and provided a sacrifice there caught in the thicket, a ram. And what did Abraham do? He named that mountain. He named that mountain on the hill or on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. For the Lord himself shall provide. And on that same mountain, 2,000 years later, Jesus willingly offered his own life as a perfect sacrifice for sins, that all who trusted by faith in that sacrifice would be justified before him. It's incredible. And so we learn that faith is relentlessly obedient to God. It's relentlessly obedient to God. Number two, we believe that here in verses 20 and 22 teaches us that faith believes God for the unknown future. 
Jot it down. Faith believes God for the unknown future. Verse 20 continues. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Notice that's future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Now, I'm going to lump these three examples all together because they all do with men who were declaring future things by faith, not yet seeing them. So let's move down this line of generations as we continue. Isaac, all right, you guys know Isaac, the promised son, the one that was led up the mountain to be sacrificed by Abraham, is now an old man. He had two children that had an interesting sort of dynamic together. Any of you have two kids that are like the exact opposite of each other? It can get interesting at times, can't it? Well, needless to say, Jacob and Esau... Isaac's two children had a conflicting relationship. Soon as Esau was born, his twin brother Jacob came out grabbing onto his heel. And he basically maintained that character all the way through, which is why his name was Heel Catcher. It's, he was kind of a conniver. He was a bit of a manipulator, a bit of a deceiver. And yet, this story continues, and you know the story, Esau came in from hunting one day, and he was hangry, <laughs> hungry and angry. And you know what that does to a man? It makes him very irrational. And basically, Esau, Jacob, finds an opportunity. He says, hey, I'll make you your favorite stew if you want to give me your birthright. And of course, Esau is just thinking about his stomach, and he's like, yeah, sure, whatever. I don't care. And Jacob remembers that. So when it comes time at the end of their father's life to bless their children, and that fatherly blessing was everything, it was declaring by faith that the future of their generations, of what their lives would consist of, it was that passing on, so to speak, of the torch. Jacob, the youngest, dresses up like his brother because his dad's now pretty much basically blind, can't see, puts hair on his chest, animal skin on his chest, kind of changes his voice up a little bit and um, brings a stew and tricks his father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. Esau, by the time he finds out this has all happened, and realizes it's too late, begs his father, and his father gives him a blessing as well. And here's what I see when I look at Isaac, the dad in this whole situation. Isaac got duped. He was deceived. He was tricked. His family, behind his back, made these conniving plans to get their way. And what does he do by faith? He pronounces blessing. What does that tell me? It tells me that Isaac was saying, even though this didn't happen the right way, God is still going to redeem it for the right purpose. And can anyone agree with me that sometimes it's difficult to trust God when your present looks like something you weren't expecting it to look like? Sometimes things get mixed up in life. You get tricked, you get lied to, you get deceived or manipulated by someone with their own agenda, you get used by another person, and you're the one who's become a victim of other people's carnal behavior. There are two decisions you have at that moment. 
The decision of faith is that it takes faith to say this wasn't right, but God is still using it. He has something different and better in the future that will come out of this that I don't see yet. And it takes faith to not be buried in bitterness and unforgiveness and let the whole plan of God's future for you be hindered by your anger and your frustration and your hurt, but rather saying, you know what, that wasn't okay, but I will declare by faith that God is still in charge that his promises are still true, that his plan for my life and the future of my generations will be fulfilled, that takes faith. Because sin is prevalent in this world and we are bound to be hurt by it. But God will take what Satan meant for evil and he will use it for good. And this continues down the line because later Jacob, the one who tricked his father into the blessing, will bless his grandchildren. Jacob the father of Joseph, his favorite son, whom his brothers sold into slavery, thought he was dead for most of his life, all the way till his almost dying year. He thought Joseph was dead. And when he finds out Joseph is alive in Egypt and they come in the midst of a famine and are blessed and are given a home, Jacob is just ecstatic. I mean, this can't get any better. And then he finds out, oh, I've got two grandkids, Ephraim and Manasseh, that Joseph had in Egypt. And so Joseph brings his two children to his father, Jacob, to be blessed in the same way that he was blessed. And Jacob, he's frail. He has no strength. But by faith, he thought, man, all hope has been lost. But by faith, I'm going to get up out of my bed. And it says he leaned on his staff and he worshiped as he blessed his grandkids. To the very end. You know, it takes faith to proclaim blessing and to serve the Lord and to worship the Lord till the very end, even in your weakest state. And notice these two kids were born in Egypt, but he makes room for them in the lineage of Israel. And maybe you're noticing a trend here. I want to just state this as a little bit of a sidetrack. Notice all the switching of firstborns. You notice that? Ishmael was the firstborn, but Isaac was the son of promise. Esau was the firstborn, And Jacob was the son of promise. Manasseh was the firstborn. And when Joseph takes his kids to Jacob to be blessed, he puts them there. And what does Jacob do? He crosses his hands and puts the blessing of the firstborn on Ephraim and not Manasseh. You know, Joseph gets all upset. What are you doing? (laughs) No, son, this is how it has to be. What's up with all that? Do you know Jesus in the New Testament is given this title? That Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. There's a bunch of cults that will tell you, see, the Bible says that Jesus was created. He was the firstborn, the first one that God created, the firstborn of God. No, the whole Old Testament tells us that the firstborn is not about who was born first, it was about who receives the blessing of authority. Jesus was not created. He wasn't the first one created. He was the one who was the firstborn given the authority of God over all creation. Isn't that amazing? I think it's amazing. And finally, we end with Joseph. And Joseph, when he finally comes to the end of his days, he prophesies about the return of the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, to the land of promise. 
He knew God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, this is going to take place. I might not see it in my lifetime. So he prophesies, when they take you back, when you go back to the land of promise, take my bones with you. Don't let me to be, leave me to be buried in Egypt in a foreign land. I want to be with the people of God. And you know what? You know what? We, we know as a historical fact that Joseph, when he died, his tomb was not buried in Egypt. It sat there above the ground for 400 years. And in that time, the Hebrews became slaves to Egypt. They became oppressed by Egypt. A pharaoh came in and started to become a taskmaster and put them under hard labor. And every time a Hebrew would pass by that grave of Joseph, it would be a reminder, one day God is going to deliver us. See, Joseph's faith to say, you're going to go back to that land one day, served as a monument of faith to all those in Egypt, even though many forgot about it, but ultimately that promise was fulfilled. Ultimately, he was returned back to the promised land when God delivered his people. But here's what I want to get at. With all these examples, notice they were all speaking faith into the future. My encouragement to you would be to never doubt God's goodness for the future simply because of a difficulty in the present. Don't think that just because right now is hard, we don't have hope for the future. There is hope for the future. Do you guys believe that there's a bright hope for the church in the future? I do. I don't care how dark it gets in this world. I don't care how evil it gets in this world. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I believe that our best days are in front of us. We might lose our homes. We might lose our resources, but we will never lose what God has given us. Our future is bright, church. And we need more people. And I'm going to say this carefully because there's a lot of abuse of the gift of prophecy out there, but we need more people prophesying over the future of their children and their grandchildren and the church of Jesus Christ in this nation. We need more people declaring God's truth and God's plan for this future of this church. We cannot doubt his goodness in the future. I've got 10 minutes to do three more points. Okay, let's move. Number three, write it down. Faith, this is important. Okay, faith obeys God above man. Can you write it down? Faith obeys God above man. Look at, now we move to Moses. Now, now we're in Egypt's history, and we're told that a new pharaoh came into power, and they didn't remember Joseph anymore. They didn't remember that whole season of Joseph's life in, in Egypt. So Moses is born, and we read in verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. So by the time Moses arrives on the scene, Pharaoh was hell-bent on the destruction of the Jewish people. He looked and saw this people that now were thriving in Egypt. They were prosperous. They were blessed. They were fruitful in everything they did. They were large in number. And Pharaoh said, uh-oh, these people are going to be a threat to us. And so, as history tells us, the people of God, the Jewish people, are constantly hated by nations. Constantly, Satan's constantly trying to eradicate them. And so Pharaoh says, I want all the male-born children, listen, the male-born children of Israel put to death. He calls all the midwives and says, when those babies are coming out, I want a partial birth abortion right there. I want them dead. I want them killed. 
and thank God that the Hebrew midwives feared God more than men, so they refused to do this on certain occasions. But it was an evil time. And here, Moses' parents, it says, they saw that Moses was a beautiful child, and they hid him for three months from the king who wants to kill them. Now, when it says beautiful child, it's not like they were saying, but he's just so cute, we can't let him die. Okay, that's not what it means. The word beautiful means favored. In other words, they looked at Moses and they said, God has a plan. God has a plan for this life. And it's a beautiful plan. And it has to be protected against those who want to take the life of this child. I find it interesting that historically, right before God is going to do something amazing in the midst of godless suppression, Satan's strategy has always been to kill the babies. Pharaoh recognizes that God's people are being blessed. And so what's his decision? Have the government kill the babies. Jesus, born to Mary, a savior for God's people and to the world. When Herod hears about this coming Messiah and his kingdom is threatened, what is the strategy Satan employs through the government? Kill the babies. Two years and under, just kill them all. I am not a prophet, but personally, one of the things that excites me about this step in the right direction of our decision as a nation in Roe versus Wade might very well be a mighty move of God's hand preparing the church in this nation for spiritual deliverance. Because God's saying, we're not going to kill the babies. We're not going to let this happen. And, and of course, it's still happening. We realize there's Deception is higher than ever before, but the church has an opportunity here because God is raising up deliverers. But notice the quality of faith that Moses' parents had in the face of their very lives being threatened. This is important. These words, why did they hide Moses for three months? Which, if you've ever raised children, I don't even know how that's possible, right? How do you keep a three-month child quiet for three months? I don't know. But they found a way. Why? Because it says they were not afraid of the king's command. Someone needs to put this into their heart. I fear, and please, I don't mean no offense, but I'm just, I'm responding to what I observed today. I would fear that if most of today's church was back then, that babies would have just been killed and slaughtered under the guise of Romans 13. Submit to the government. The Bible says submit to the government. We just need to, oh, is it bad? Oh, it's bad. It's evil. Oh, that's, that's really bad. But we need to put our heads down, stay quiet, and just submit. Just trust God. He's going to work it all out. And that is one of the most cowardly arguments I think I've ever heard that people use as an excuse to not stand up for what is true, right, and good in the sight of God. Does the Bible call us to submit to the governing authorities? Absolutely does. In fact, Two times in the New Testament, we're called as Christians to submit to the authorities that God has put in place over us. That is civic authorities in our nation, in our government, and how laws are operated that govern our society. We are to submit to our governing authorities. We are not to be rebel rousers simply because we like to shake our fists in the seat or in the, in the face of all authority. That's evil. Some of you need to recognize that and curb that desire just to be a well, I'm just going to stand here when they tell me to move just because I don't want to move, and I'm, I'm going I'm to show them, you know. Don't have that attitude. 
That's all we have time for on today's edition of The Ascending Life with Pastor Josh Flevins. Thanks for tuning in. The Ascending Life is a ministry of Grace Calvary Chapel in St. Joseph, Missouri. And our prayer is that today's message from the book of Hebrews impacted your faith journey in a mighty way. If you have any questions about today's message or would like to connect for other reasons, feel free to give us a call at 816-279-2090. That number again is 816-279-2090. If you'd like to listen to today's teaching again or hear others like it from Pastor Josh, just visit theascendinglife.com and click on media. You can watch our YouTube channel, read our blog, or listen to our podcast. Or better yet, visit us in person. We meet each Sunday at 8 and 10 a.m. and would love to have you join us. At Grace Calvary Chapel, we believe in awakening people to the love, truth, and power of God. If you're looking for a place where you can experience the love, truth, and power of God, we'd love to be that space for you. All are welcome, so come just as you are. For directions and other information about who we are and what we believe in, visit theascendinglife.com. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram to receive daily encouragement too. Well, that's it for today. But thanks again for tuning in to today's message with Pastor Josh. Join us again next time to learn more from the mighty book of Hebrews right here on The Ascending Life. Reaching up, we're pressing